0: Our guest today describes himself as a normal bloke. Many others, though, would say that he's a hero. He's an ex-vet who has a passion for technical diving and cave exploring. These skills meant that he was one of a two-man team sent to assist in the rescue of 12 boys and their coach who have become trapped in a flooded cave in Thailand. For his heroics, this not-so-normal, normal bloke has been awarded the Order of Australia and his joint 2019 Australian of the Year along with his dive partner Richard Harris. They have both co-authored a book of their account of the rescue caught against all odds. Ladies and gents, Craig Callan. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in, so bring on the inspiration.
1: Hello Fiona, how are
0: you? Great, thanks. It's nice and early your side of the world.
1: Uh Oh, I don't know, the day's half over, I get up early. So.
0: What time are you normally up? At 7am over at your side, isn't
1: it? It is, yeah, I normally get up about 4.30 or so. Oh my goodness. Get you're on with joc- it, rest when you're dead, Fiona. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you're a Jocko subscriber, aren't you, to the 4.30 in the morning?
1: <laughs> uh, no, Jocko, what's a Jocko subscriber?
0: Oh, Jocko Willick, he's a Navy SEAL that always says get up at 4.30 in the morning and start your day. So I thought that's where you're heading.
1: Oh, I think I've heard of him. Is he, um, uh, he uh, Tim Ferriss might have interviewed him at some stage yeah, or something? I think,
0: is... he, I think he did. I haven't heard that interview, but I think he did, yeah.
1: Yeah, he's on all that sort of circuit, isn't he? That self-improvement stuff and all that, It's um, which is good, but it all gets a bit same-ish after a while.
0: Have you always got up at four thirty?
1: Ah, I've always been an early riser. Yeah, yeah. I'm most productive at that time. Wow. Consequently, I'm pretty hopeless at night time as a rule.
0: <laughs> Whereas I'm the reverse. I'm I'm a, a late a later uh, to bed and a late riser. So um, <laughs> don't don't get me up early in the morning. Well, thanks for um, thanks for doing this, Greg. My pleasure. You have a book out, Against All Odds, which is about your Thai cave rescue experience, but I want to sort of take you back to the very start about how you got into cave diving in the first place. Um, How did you get into it?
1: Yeah, so I'd I'd sort of always, since my youth, been into adventure sports one way or another. I wasn't a uh, big team sports person. And so I tried a few things. You go through this process of doing all this different stuff. um, And one of those things I did was scuba diving. Uh, So I did my open water course in the early 90s, I guess. I can't remember the actual year. And uh, did that for a while. Went around, did a bit of fish prodding and looking at coral, which was nice enough, but it never really grabbed me that much. Um, uh, but after a couple of years, I just happened to meet someone that was a cave diving instructor. And, uh, from the moment I heard about it, I thought that is the thing for me. That is way cool cave diving. Uh,
0: what was it attracted you about it? Cause to me, I go confined spaces, limited air supply. Hell no. Whereas you go, yeah, that sounds like a wonderful idea. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I, I don't know what it was that really grabbed me, probably confined spaces, limited air supply, um, <laughs> but I just, it just clicked with me and I thought that is something that I really want to do and I just picked it up and ran with it and uh, so I started doing that in 1997. Um, right from the outset I was really lucky, I mean a lot of these things, it's like anything else you do in life, It depends on what crowd you fall in with and having the right people to do it with and I had a few really good dive buddies. Um, I was very lucky that my instructor that I started out with invited me on an expedition to Vanuatu very early on before I even finished all my basic courses and went over there and really caught the exploration bug um, you know at a time when I was still pretty wet behind the ears if that's a excusable expression in this context and uh, I was laying line in Virgin Cave where nobody had ever been before and that's one of the best things about cave diving is or caving generally is you get to the opportunity to go to places where nobody's ever been before and see things that nobody's ever seen and uh, that's a that's a pretty special privilege.
0: So not only were you new at it- You're going into virgin caves where you didn't know how narrow they were, how anything. You didn't know if you're laying line.
1: Yeah, that's right. Everybody, the the uninitiated, always home in on this confined spaces thing. I've never really been affected by that that much. Um, I mean, I accept that it is a. a natural thing for most people, this, this fear of confined spaces, but it is something that you can overcome. And people, like any fear in life, um, I mean, you cannot, you can't control what what fear you've got, but how you, what you can control is how you respond to that. And you, you can, you know, fold at the first sign of anything that confronts you and run away from it and avoid it, or you can face up to it and overcome that. And I think you know, most people would undoubtedly say that the, the high points in their life are when they've, they've confronted a, a fear or a challenge or some sort of adversity and, and faced it down. And if you can do that, you can overcome anything. I mean, I've got some other, um, you know, when I first started caving, I wasn't great with heights, I wouldn't say I had an overwhelming phobia of it, but I certainly wasn't confident with it. But just with exposure and doing rope work um, and, and working at heights after a while, and you overcome that, and now I'm really quite comfortable. Uh, and anybody can do that. It does Just because you've got a, a bit of a, a fear of confined spaces doesn't mean you can't be a, a cave diver, but you have to have the, the determination to overcome it.
0: So how long have you been cave diving for?
1: Uh, 23 years now.
0: Wow, and it's taken you all over the world. So your first one was in Vanuatu?
1: That that was my first cave diving in Anger. yeah. And since then, I have been really lucky to have been to all sorts of places, uh, especially when you combine it. I had a bit of a uh, shipwreck diving career as well, um, mostly during the, the 2000s. Haven't mm-hmm. done much of that for the last 10 years or so. Uh, but I've been to heaps of countries and oceans around the world and it's definitely been the prime, most uh, significant thing that I've done in my life.
0: With the shipwrecks, were you trying to find new undiscovered wrecks or were they known wrecks that you were diving on?
1: Uh, I was involved in exploration, so I wasn't the driving force behind it. Uh, A lot of what we did, I was very lucky to uh, hook up with a guy called Vidar Skogli, um, originally a Norwegian, who was doing a lot of exploration on war wrecks in the Java Sea and South China Sea, Mm -hmm. and he found quite a lot of wrecks that had not been previously located. I mean, the, the local fishermen up there knew where they were, but... Divers certainly didn't, and and they hadn't been previously explored since they sank in the war. Uh, And I, because of my involvement there, I was um, lucky enough to be the first on a lot of those wrecks. We had a pretty small team that used to go up there at least once a year, oftentimes twice a year, and and spend a few weeks exploring, and uh, that was great fun as well. But cave diving is the true and narrow path, and I'm definitely back on that now.
0: With the wrecks, was that linked in with the Defence Force recovering the downed?
1: No, no, nothing to do with a purely private enterprise. Uh, Mm. We tend to work alone in small teams and and try and fly under the radar rather than get involved in big organisations. That really reduces your your flexibility and you tend to find there's lots of rules and procedures that you've got to work around. And uh, that doesn't suit me too much.
0: There was a there was a part of me then when you started talking about initially diving on wrecks. I was I was really hoping for pirate treasure, but when <laughs> no. you went down the down planes, so I was like, oh no, pirate treasure.
1: No, so no pirates, <laughs> but lots of guns and torpedoes and uh, yeah, pretty mangled looking ships.
0: Oh. um. So you've been diving for cave diving for twenty odd years. How did you get linked up into the whole Thai? cave diving um, recovery like what made them sort of reach out to you in the first place and say hey come over to Thailand?
1: Yeah so that that was a, a confluence of a few events the the first two uh, guy, cave divers that were on site over there uh, were Rick Stanton and, and John Valanthan, um, who are British guys and they got there under the auspices of the British Cave Rescue Council which is a really good organization that has a lot of international links, and they tend to be first or near to first on site in a lot of these type of incidents, not cave diving rescues, but caving rescues where expertise is required. And we uh, we mean um uh, Harry, Richard Harris, my dive buddy, uh mm-hmm. knew Rick really well. We've done quite a lot of diving with him over the years, and Up until the boys were found, uh, to be honest, we thought it was going to be a search and recovery mission. We didn't really think there was much chance that they'd survived. Of course, with anything like that, always until you can actually see bodies before you, you treat it as a a rescue. Uh, You don't want to leave anything to chance if there might be somebody alive. So the search was being conducted in haste. But uh, Harry and I were still sitting in Australia at that stage. Uh, watching and, and waiting to see what had happened and to our surprise and to most people's surprise it turned out that the boys were all found fine after nine days of sitting in the dark and it, uh, uh, we all started thinking about how they could possibly be recovered so as it became clear that a cave diving rescue would be the go uh, Rick uh, we'd, we'd been talking to him anyway um, and he put out the call for some help and that came to us and we'd had an interest in cave diving rescue not least because we thought that maybe it would be us that would need to be rescued one day uh, and harry designed a, a course a few years ago that he's been running with uh, regularly um, usually once a year or once every couple of years and i had been helping out on that too so we'd developed some techniques and a a modicum of of expertise in recovering people underwater and uh because cave diving rescue is so rare well this is only as far as i can find out the the third cave diving rescue in history that's ever been conducted uh and the first couple were nowhere near the scale of this so you, you haven't got a big gene pool to call on to when you go chasing up cave diving rescuers and so we turned out to be on the list
0: So how far into the process were you in Thailand? So from the, okay, the boys are missing, at what stage, how many days had passed since you got there?
1: So from when they went missing, which was the 23rd of June in 2018, it was nine days before they were found. And then it was another four days after that that we eventually got on site. Um, It wasn't really straightforward. It's not just a matter of going down to the airport and jumping on a plane and getting up to northern Thailand. Was a whole load of process that had to be gone through between the thai government and the australian government um but that was expedited I, I don't exactly know what happened with that that was all opaque to me but uh yeah we got the um got the call uh when it actually came through i had about two hours to get packed and get to the airport and uh, get on a plane so uh, we arrived on the uh, night of Friday, the 6th of July. So the boys had been in there for 13 days by that stage.
0: Wow. And what what did you find when you turned up on scene? What was the scene like?
1: It was absolutely chaotic. Uh, was I don't it? know how many people were there, but there were definitely thousands of people um, milling around at this cave site, uh, all, all sorts of people. So there's, there's military and police. Uh, there was a few cave divers around the place, um, a lot of logistics people, so you know cooks and cleaners and everything that were looking after all these other people. Uh, a lot of people from the the government um, in Thailand and every government department seemed to want to be involved in that, and heaps of media as well. Uh, as soon as we arrived on site and opened up the door of the van, we were confronted by all these media. And we sort of scuttled off and hid and got protected from those for the next few days, which was good for us. Uh, We didn't want to be distracted by that. And so there's all this stuff going on. We, of course, didn't speak the language. um, Mm. So everything was through interpreter while we were dealing with the the ties. Uh, But we got looked after uh, pretty well by Australian authorities, um, Australian Federal Police and Department of Foreign Affairs. And also a major role was played by the, there was a US Air Force contingent as well. They'd come down from Okinawa and they really took the lead with getting things organised as far as the rescue itself. So uh, we were able to just concentrate on dealing with the diving. We didn't have to think too much about government relations but there was was a lot of meetings going on and uh, definitely a lot of stuff, activity that we really didn't understand. But
0: you're well aware of the dangers because I heard that not long after you came off the plane you, the the Thai Navy SEAL passed away diving in the
1: cave. That was actually before we arrived so we were in transit at the time and um yeah, he was, uh, he was going out uh, at the same time that, that we came in. So that had happened earlier that day, uh, which was, uh, it was actually, you know, I'm always a bit careful about saying this because I wouldn't want it to be taken out of context, but I think it was a, a blessing in disguise for the, the rescue um, because after that death, there was all cave diving by non cave divers was shut down in the cave and that enabled us to have a free run to do what we needed to do but of course that's a you know it's a shame that it took somebody's personal tragedy to do that and mm. i'm uh, i'm sure it's not much of a consolation for his wife and kids that are left behind
0: mm. so you get there thousands of people on scene what was what was the cave like? So when you went into the when you first sort of said, Okay, we're gonna go down to see the boys what was it like? Because it was going into water then coming up into an air cavity, then going back down into the Is that right? Like it was sort of a like a snake.
1: Yeah, that's right. So the boys were two point two kilometres inside the cave and wow. there's a few stages that you go through to get to them. Uh, Right near the entrance there's about 500 metres of just really big passage um, that you can walk through and you have to climb over a couple of hills and that sort of thing, but most of it's walking through a streamway to uh, get up to this chamber. Uh, There's a a couple little duck-unders as well where you have to just duck your head underwater and go a few metres and then come out in the air chamber again. And that gets you into what's called Chamber 3, which was where the dive base was. Mm -hmm. From there, that's where you get all your gear on and start diving. And it's about 1.5 kilometres through to where the boys were, which is uh, mostly, well, probably about 50% diving, uh, 50% in canal passage, where you can have your head out of the water. Um, but you can't get out of the water yourself. um, And so you just swim up the the passage. And then there was one section where you have to get right out of the water and uh, cave for about uh, 250 metres or so, and then go through the last last section of diving. So it's quite a complicated process. It took us about two hours to get that two kilometres in there.
0: So you're getting out at the bit that was dry, and you said you're getting out and sort of caving along. That's with your tanks and everything. Yeah,
1: you have to carry everything across, and then when you're coming out, carry it all back again.
0: Lordy, okay.
1: Uh, this is all sort of standard stuff. Um, okay. Uh, it's funny when you, you're undertaking a bit of a esoteric activity like cave diving. After a while, because you're so familiar with it, you take it for granted that everybody else thinks this is normal as well. Now, I suppose that that uh, goes for most things that people do in life, but my exposure is maybe with cave diving. And, uh, you yeah, know, it's funny when people express amazement and you go, well, oh, what's unusual about that? I mean, anybody would crawl <laughs> through a cave carrying <laughs> dive gear. Well, why wouldn't
0: you? No, no, Craig, not normal <laughs> people. <laughs> Only the very brave. Now, where are the boys? Because the boys cave that they were in the problem was that there was that was locked by water so where were they getting their air supply from
1: uh where they ended up so once when they were coming out they'd been into the cave they were coming out and they found the way blocked by this flash flood that came through and so they had to because the water level was rising retreat further and further into the cave and they ended Mm -hmm. up at this area it's quite a big chamber called chamber nine Um, which goes very high up, and there's a fair bit of air volume in there. It wasn't really a problem, the air quality, because you've got water flowing through, so that brings extra oxygen in as they metabolise it. And uh, also the carbon dioxide that they produce, that's pretty soluble in water, so uh, that dissolves in the water flowing and, and gets taken out of the cave as well. And there was some talk about bad air quality, but I didn't really detect that. I felt perfectly comfortable. Um, We're all familiar with uh, when carbon dioxide builds up in in caves. Um, That's pretty uncomfortable, but I didn't sense that at all while I was in there.
0: So tell me about the first time you came into the chamber with the boys because how many boys were there? Was there 12?
1: Uh, There were 12 plus their coach. So the boys were between 11 and 16 years old and then Uh the coach was 25, but he was only a little bloke. You couldn't really tell him apart from the the bigger boys anyway. Okay. Yeah, so when we arrived in there, they were were getting used to people coming and going by that stage. Uh, I can only imagine what it must have been like for them the, the previous Monday when Rick and John first broke through and you know, they'd been sitting there in the dark uh, for, for nine days without anything to eat and, you you know, you, you think about their situation I mean, they must have had their moments during that time when mm. they thought it was all over and then all of a sudden these uh, guys pop their heads up out of the water and start speaking a, a strange language to most of them and uh, um, they thought, oh, well, are we just going to jump in the water and, and go out with these guys right now? But that obviously wasn't going to happen. Uh, there was a bit to organise before that occurred. Um, but the next day, uh, the guys came back with food. Um, so by the time we saw them, they all being fed. Uh, they had space blankets there, so they are a bit more comfortable. And uh, they were getting used to, uh, they'd, they'd had quite a few visits, at least one visit every day. And uh, so they weren't too surprised to see us. Um, my main reaction I heard, I was amazed at what good shape they were in. Uh, you know, I've never spent two weeks inside a, a cave before, and it was it was 14 days by the time we got there and got to see them. Uh I don't know if I'd be as bright and chirpy as they were. They'd all lost a few kilos, obviously, with uh um nine days without eating. Mm. But uh yeah, they were they were happy and positive and, you know, mucking around and laughing like kids do. Um wow. and uh they were they were still up for it. They looked pretty good. Um, I don't really know what I was expecting. Um but uh, I suppose I expected them to look a little bit the worse for wear, but that was not the case.
0: How did you communicate with them with the language barrier in terms of what was going to happen and that you were there to... Because you said you, you got there and it was they didn't speak English. Yeah,
1: that's right. Well, there was one of the boys that spoke a bit of English, um, a kid called Adul. Uh, mm-hmm. But there was also, by this stage, um, before Saman... Gunan, the, the Navy SEAL, uh, had died in there. Um, there were four Thai uh, army, or sorry, three Navy and one army personnel that had made their way into the cave and they were staying in there. Uh, we subsequently found out that they had used all their gas on the way in and so they didn't have a way of getting out until we rescued them as well. Oh. But uh, one of them was a doctor, Dr. Puck. Uh, and he spoke fairly passable English, so he acted as an interpreter for us and uh, and took them, um, uh, you know, enabled the communication. While we were in there, because the it had pretty much been decided, we haven't been given final approval, but it, we could see the way it was heading as far as a cave dive and rescue was going to occur. And so we took a letter in with us that was written in Thai that explained to the boys exactly what was going to happen Um, Mm -hmm. and that was read out while we were there and uh, they just seemed to think oh yeah well okay that's what's going to happen that's what's going to happen Um, you know explained to them that they were going to be anesthetized so they'd they'd, uh, have uh, a, a tablet and then a couple of injections they'd go to sleep and they'd have all this dive gear put on them while they were asleep and be swum out of the cave and then they'd wake up in hospital a few hours later and uh, it didn't seem to bother them too much at all.
0: So how did that come out as anaesthetising them the best option? Because wasn't Elon Musk trying to put in some sort of a pod or something?
1: Uh, there, were, there were all sorts of plans going on about drilling and trying to find other uh, entrances to the cave and pumping the cave dry, all that sort of stuff, which wasn't really going to work, but it all got explored. Um, yeah, Elon was certainly there. I didn't get to meet Elon, unfortunately. I was in the in the cave diving while, when he arrived. But he brought his little submarine with him. Um and that was there were there were a few problems with that, most particularly that it was really too big to fit through some of the restrictions in the cave. So we we couldn't use that. Um but uh, yeah, so it really turned out that the, the cave diving was going to be the way.
0: So, first boy goes. The other, Ooh. the other boys obviously seeing him go to sleep because you're you're he's getting anaesthetised. What was the visibility like though in the water? Was it clear or was it really murky?
1: No, it was shocking. We could see about ten centimetres. So you could see your hand in front of your face, and that was about it, really. Um, In most places, there are a few places where it got a little bit better, and you could see maybe a couple of meters, but it soon closed back down again. So it was all really done by feel, and you you might just as well have had your eyes closed for most of it. it would have just, in fact, some people did say that. Harry said that uh, he was spending a lot of time with his eyes closed because that just enables you to stop trying to see when you're not going to be able to see anything and uh, concentrate on doing it by feel. And that, uh, you know, that's pretty confronting for a lot of people. But again, we're, we're trained to do that um, in cave diving. You never know when you might have to operate with no visibility. So we know what to do as far we have a guideline there that we follow. And uh, we can operate all the equipment um, without actually having to look at it
0: was it worse because of was it everyone kicking up the silt is that when they were diving is that what was or is it just the flow of the river was really muddy
1: oh, it was both uh, for the most part it was just because all of this water i mean there's massive quantities of water flowing through and as it comes into the cave from the hills up above it brings a lot of silt through with it but uh, all the people swimming through you know in and out every day did not help matters either. Um, that was definitely making it worse.
0: So the first boy was dis- discovered on the 6th of July. Was that the 6th of the July? Is that when you got there? Uh,
1: no, the 6th of July is when we arrived. It was the 2nd of July when they were found, Monday the 2nd. And when did you bring them out? Uh, we, that happened over three days. Uh, mm-hmm. So we started on the 8th. Um, which was the Sunday, so this was now day 15 after they had gone missing. Uh, We brought four boys out on the first day, four on the second day, and then the last four plus the coach on the last day.
0: What were the nights like? Because you obviously weren't there 24-7, so when you first arrived, you would have, I'm assuming, gone in and dived and, and sort of assessed the situation, and then you would have had to go back to your hotel and sort of think, well, these boys are still in the cave.
1: Yeah, that's right. Well, we had a lot of talking to do. Um, so on that first day, uh, the the day before the rescue started, uh, we did go into. We wanted to get a look at the boys and do a, a medical assessment on them, and also just suss out the cave for ourselves as well, because we'd had it pretty well described to us, but that's not the same as seeing it for yourself. Mm-hmm. So we went in and and did that. Uh, While we were doing that, um, the rest of the team that had already seen the cave, they were down at the local swimming pool just practising with a few volunteer boys from the local swimming club um, with the, the gear and seeing if they could move the boys around okay in the water and then we uh we came back out um that night had a lot more discussion uh changed a few minor things I mean the plan was pretty well formulated by then, but uh there were a few things that we had to adjust um uh talking a lot and doing a bit of training about the the anesthetic um and uh I go back to the the hotel and there's this constant pressure on us um uh, because we knew that the, the the cave wasn't fully flooded at this stage, but when the monsoon rains started in earnest, which was coming any day, then that the floodwaters were going to be so strong that nobody could have really got in there at all. So it was all over then. Um, and yeah, while we I can remember lying in my bed at this little hotel down the road where we're staying and listening to the rain on the roof, and you're really wondering each night if you've been in there for the last time and it's going to be all over the next day. So that was the real time pressure to get this job done.
0: Oh, And the, and the boys would have known that as well. So they would have known that it was a race against time.
1: Uh, I'm, I'm not so sure about that. I, you know, I really do wonder if, if they realize uh, cause they've been in there so long at this stage, you know, by the time the, the last boys came out, they, uh, they'd they been in there for 17 days by then. And, of course, you know, we talk about days and nights, but that's meaningless for them because it's pitch black in there. They, they still had lights, but they'd been conserving their torches, so they would have had those turned off most of the time to save the batteries. Um, and it all just blends into one, really. You don't maintain your, your diurnal rhythms very well in that sort of situation. Uh, but I don't, I don't really know if they realised that about that pressure for the rain coming. Um, you know, I don't, don't think anybody would have wanted to put any more pressure on them than they were already experiencing. Uh, but having said that, they were pretty keen to get out of there. They'd had enough caving by the end of seventeen days, and uh, so they wanted to get on with it.
0: You mentioned that they were conserving their their lights, and you also mentioned that you brought them in um, food and uh the space blankets and stuff like that were you bringing in torches for them as well light uh, sources
1: yeah yeah we there, there was always something that was getting uh, getting taken in and they had lots of light by the end there for those last, so for those last few days uh there was no shortage of torches and stuff
0: so the plan was formulated to knock them out and take them take them through the cave once you started that um rescue process was it reconsidered at any stage was it did after the first one did they did you say this is really more tricky than what we thought or was there any sort of discussion about are we going to proceed with this
1: yeah um no it was actually the opposite we were so uncertain about this Uh, you know to be honest all of us expected casualties and to this day nobody is more surprised than me that we got away with it with a with 100% success rate. Uh, you know, this this is so dangerous and there are so many things that could have gone wrong with this rescue. And the fact that they all went absolutely right 13 times over is absolutely astounding. So on that first day, we were really uncertain and had no confidence at all that we were going to get away with this um after the first day, we allowed ourselves to relax. We were just all amazed that it actually got away with it and that this crazy plan could actually work. But uh, we didn't want to relax and, and rest on our laurels because there's still quite a bit of work to do and nine more people to, to come out. Um, but it was definitely, you know, mentally a little bit easier after that stage.
0: Okay. So who was it? Was the coach last one out?
1: Uh, no, he was uh, the the first one out on the last day. So he uh, he, he waited till the end. Um, I'm I'm not sure why that happened. Although it was a bit, as I said, you know, we couldn't really tell him apart from the other boys, and uh, so I think it was just you know somebody tapped him on the shoulder and said, "Right, you're up," and mm-hmm. uh, step forward and away you go. His job was. Pretty much done by then, uh, but he did a fantastic job on. Have not heard a uh, a bad word spoken about Kochek, You know, particularly during that first nine days before the the boys were found. Um, he, he did a, a great job of keeping their spirits up and and keeping it all together. And uh, everybody speaks very admiringly of him.
0: So, how? So you mentioned that you did not take them all out. So it was. Over three days, how did you, when you sort of saying to the boys, okay, we're going to have to take you out and, in in um, dribs and drabs, sort of a thing, not all at once. How did they go? Because I, I would hate to be that last person sitting in there going, "I got on the last one. I'm here by myself in a cave, now waiting for them to come back and get me." How how was it sort of? Um, Discussed with them okay well this is the last one for the day that you guys got to stay here for another night we'll be back tomorrow
1: yeah how well, did that go down well look you can look at that two two ways i think if they had had any appreciation of how dangerous this was i'd, I'd be pretty sure that i'd be wanting to wait till last and uh, <laughs> all the everything had been sorted out to the, the best possible way um if, if it was me i mean you know i wouldn't be game to uh be knocked out, be asleep, and uh, have my life completely in somebody else's hands while my head was underwater for three hours. But, uh, um, yeah, I don't know. You, uh, um, you, you you can definitely look at that two ways. I don't know which one I would have preferred. But uh, anyway, it, it was what it was. Somebody had to come out last, and whichever audit was done in, we would have been having the same discussion.
0: How did you manage their airways? Was it a full face mask that you had on them?
1: Yeah, it was. Because they were asleep, they uh, couldn't hold a mouthpiece in their mouth, so it had to be full face mask. Um, And that was one of the main dramas we had because the, the full face masks are made for adults, not these little skinny kids in Northern Thailand that have lost a few kilos anyway from what they were before. Um, mm. So particularly on the smallest kids, and, and a couple of these ones, the eleven-year-olds, they were tiny little things. They weren't really very big at all, and we had a lot of trouble getting the face masks to seal. But once we did do that, I, the um, as far as maintaining airways go, they weren't uh, weren't too bad at all. When normally, with uh, airway maintenance in, during anaesthetics, your uh, your biggest risk cases are overweight, middle-aged men, um, which these patients certainly weren't. So they weren't that prone to airway collapse. And also the, the face masks, because they've got air in them, they've got some buoyancy, and they tended to hold their heads up a bit, we think. Um, so there, there were no real dramas with that. But some of them didn't breathe all that well. They went through stages, a few of them, where they their breathing had slowed right down. And then it would speed up again. But they were on their own by that stage. I and mean, once their heads were underwater, there was nothing to be done to help them. Uh, you know, there's no such thing as underwater CPR. The, the divers got mm. enough to do just with um, uh, getting themselves and, and the boy through the water. Uh, so that that's pretty amazing to me to this day that, that that still went okay. You know, how we didn't have one leaking mask or boy that just didn't breathe well enough while he was asleep i don't know
0: what was the feeling like when you first took the first one out and you were like because how did it work was was it you and richard taking them out or was there more people that were sort of in that process
1: no so the conveyancing was done uh, by the the four british divers so rick and john that were the first two they're doing the search and then two other divers that had come out um Richard's role was in at Chamber 9 where the boys were, mm-hmm. and he was doing the initial anaesthetic. I was at the next step down the line. So when they left Chamber 9, they had an initial 300-metre dive through a sump, uh, which took about 20 minutes or so, uh, maybe 25 And then they came out into a dry section of the cave, which I mentioned before, where all the gear has to come off. Um, They have to be carried over this about 250 meters of dry cave, all Mm -hmm. the gear carried across, and then they uh, go back in the water again. Uh, So I was responsible for that. And uh, all of them at that stage had to have a, a top up of the anesthetic as well, because the anesthetic only lasted for 45 minutes. So they were having repeat doses on the the journey out um every around about forty five minutes when they started to wake up, so they did that. We were all put back in the water again, and uh off they went for the rest of the journey out so at the end of that, we didn't know what was happening because there's no comms between the outside of the cave and the inside of the cave oh and, they, uh, didn't,
0: they they hadn't rigged something up
1: no no um wow. And well, there there is nothing realistically. There are some underwater, oh sorry, underground uh, technologies for communication, but we didn't have anything working at all. So mm. these boys are disappearing down the line. We're sending them off uh, every now and again with the other divers, and uh, for for all we knew they could have been drowning 10 metres down the line and we wouldn't have known until the end of the day. So at the end of the day, when the last boy had gone, we'd just give a little bit of a gap for safety and then start swimming out ourselves. And that was about a two hour journey out for us. And on that first day, not knowing what had happened, and we didn't know if we were going to get back and find that you know, they'd all all drowned on the way out or what had happened. So I can very clearly remember getting back to the dive base at at Chamber 3 and I popped my head out of the water and uh, just took off my mask and I asked the the US uh, Air Force guys that were there, um, the question I asked was, did any of them survive? And uh, they said, yep, it's all sweet, everybody's okay and they're all in hospital. And uh, that was that was a pretty big moment, really. You know, we, we realised that we might actually get away with this.
0: So you said that it was a two-hour journey for yourself, but the anaesthetic only lasted for 45 minutes. Was it just at every chamber they were getting re-dosed?
1: Uh, well, when, when they would start to stir. So you don't just go from asleep to awake. It takes a little while. And they'd just start moving a bit. Their breathing rate would increase, and the diver that was with them would know that uh, they were just they were starting to stir. And all the divers had had a um, expedited course in underwater anesthesia, so they had a little oh, uh, little pack of syringes with them, and they'd pull out one of these syringes when it was needed, and just stick it into the boy's leg. So we were just injecting into the leg uh, straight through the wetsuit that they were wearing.
0: Whilst and, underwater, uh,
1: some some were done underwater. Uh, most mm-hmm. of the time, they would try and do it at a, a dry chamber. But uh, I definitely know at least one injection was given underwater. Um, not, I mean, it doesn't really make much difference whether you're underwater or not.
0: Wow! So you came out after the first few. The Americans said, "Yep, they're all they're in hospital suite." And then you had to go back and do it another eight times.
1: Uh, another nine times, yeah, yeah, yeah um, yeah, so another two days, uh which were they were pretty full days, I and mean, we were in the cave for about ten hours each day, um, but it was all right for us, we were still going to go down the road and sleep in a bed each night, we weren't the ones yeah. stuck in the cave, sleeping on the the rocks and and mud in there, so you know our experience wasn't as bad as everybody else involved that were being rescued. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I like caving and I like cave diving, but by the end of the third day, I'd had enough of this and, uh, I was pretty ready for a day off.
0: How long were the days that you were working?
1: Oh, uh, around about 10 hours or so. Um, okay. it was, you know, a fairly leisurely start to the day. So we'd get up and have breakfast and then there'd be a, a debrief and we would start heading into the cave, uh, between 9 and, and 10 o'clock in the morning, and then we'd be uh, all done by about 7 that night.
0: What was the feeling like when you when you got the last person out?
1: Uh, pretty good, really. Um... <laughs> How many
0: beers were drunk?
1: <laughs> there was a lot of beer drunk. <laughs> yeah, so it was a dry mission up until then but uh we we did our best too we, we felt like those boys had that had spent nine days in the cave without food. We felt like it had been a long stretch of time without any beer um, so uh, it's still the best debriefing technique that I know
0: <laughs> and who was involved with that were the were any of the Thai rescuers in the American yeah. Air Force involved in those celebrations as well
1: uh, so on the night that the rescue finished uh not so much um <clears throat> that that was. It was a reasonably quiet night because we were all pretty tired and uh, had had enough and just wanted to go back to bed. But uh, the next day, um, or, or that night, there was a there was a big party, yeah, uh, and uh, we ended up going to this uh, nightclub and a succession of parties. And you know, the ties <laughs> seemed to be pretty happy with us, so I yeah. certainly don't have any <laughs> recollection of paying for any of that beer.
0: Oh, how lovely! <laughs> Now, at what point did you come home? How many days afterwards did you come back to Australia?
1: Uh, We came back the following Friday. So uh, just to – listeners are probably getting a little bit confused, but the the third day of the rescue was the the Tuesday. Um, Then we had a Wednesday, um, Harry and I got to go and visit the kids in hospital, which was really good, Um, big party that night. And then the the Thursday following – Uh, We did quite a lot of media, um, and uh, we're packing up gear, ready to go, and flew out first thing on Friday morning.
0: And you flew into a media storm in Australia as well, though, didn't you?
1: Oh, totally, yeah. I mean, we really, this sounds strange to say, but we had no idea at the time that this was such a big deal around the world. Well, we did know that there were a a lot of media on site, but... I don't know, it didn't really click with me, and I guess I thought that they were mostly Thai media or something. Um, We're in in a bit of communication with home, but we just didn't have this this concept that this was a a massive event that the whole world was watching. But uh, we soon came to a full realisation when we got back home again And I had a a whole lot of people waiting at the airport, so I had to be smuggled out of the airport, and then the um, uh, reporters are turning up at the house, at home, and all this sort of thing. So I realised that life had changed a little bit.
0: Yeah. Uh, When did you get the tap on the shoulder for the Order of Australia?
1: Uh, That came... What's, uh, I, I can't remember the actual date now, but it was after a few weeks. It was towards the end of, of July, um, and so two or three weeks afterwards. And this sounded yeah, a bit bizarre, you know. I, I, I don't want it to sound like like false humility, but we were just doing a job, and we were really lucky that we had this set of skills and experience that we could apply in this situation. Um, we uh, We never... Sort of set out to do anything special really it was just there were kids in a cave and what are you going to do but try and get them out of there and then there's all this, you know strange talk about us being heroes and that sort of thing and you know i'm not a hero i'm just a normal dude but uh all of a sudden the, the seemed to capture the public's imagination and uh yeah we were um in this position of prominence and having a little bit more than our 15 minutes of fame.
0: Well, I think that when you risk your life to go save somebody else or a group of other people, I think that the tag of hero is well-deserved, Craig. So I think you can own that one.
1: Uh, well, we'll just have to agree <laughs> to disagree on that, won't we?
0: How did, what's the process of them notifying you of the Order of Australia? Is it someone knocks on your door or do they just send you a letter?
1: Uh, No, I had a a phone call from the, um, uh, he was, I I think the Secretary, the Governor General's Principal Private Secretary, he rang me Uh up and said, uh, hopefully you've got a day uh, available to come to Canberra, and you know, this is is a strange thing, I never really expected to be rolling up to Government House in Canberra, which is a a very nice address, I've got to say, and uh, (laughs) being... Treated like royalty there, so there was uh, there was a big ceremony there, having medals pinned on our chests. Um, pretty bizarre for a normal bloke.
0: And what is that? In, so you rock up, you have the ceremony, and then what is it like a a dinner or a lunch or what's the what's the
1: uh, no, day It was like? it was during the afternoon. Um, there were there were drinks and canapes afterwards, and I uh, got to have a. A nice chat to all the dignitaries that were there, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, then we went off and we had a little private dinner that night. We had a few friends that that came up to Canberra um, to be with us for the ceremony, and uh, then yeah, out we went. It was a really nice time.
0: Oh, that's good. And you've written a book against all odds, which is about the journey of the of the rescue.
1: Uh, yes, that's right. We wanted to, that that was a pretty important part uh, for me or for both of us really. So, uh, Harry and I did that together. Um, just to get it on the record, I mean, it is from our point of view, so it doesn't claim to be a comprehensive history of exactly what happened all the way through. But, um, I think it gives everybody a pretty good idea that, and it it is accurate where it was very important to us that it's, uh, 100% 100% accurate. Um, and yeah, we're, we're pretty pleased with it.
0: What's life like now, Craig? You've well, got got the Order of Australia. Are you still cave diving uh, around the world, too?
1: Still cave diving. Uh, so last year, uh, of course, we um, that uh, Bravery Medal and Star of Courage was only the beginning of it, and life just got stupider and stupider after that. Um, and we ended up Getting, uh, being named Australians of the year.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and it, from that time in particular, life just went nuts. So uh, 2019 was absolutely crazy. Uh, you know, I spent probably about two-thirds of the year away from home just travelling and, and speaking, getting to meet all sorts of interesting people. And then this year, 2020, was going to be the year that I got back to cave diving seriously. Um, mm-hmm. And we were very fortunate that we did get a couple of expeditions away at the beginning of the year. Uh, so we were in New Zealand in February and then off to Canada in March. And then all this craziness with the virus hit. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's, it's shut down all our planned activities. Um, I don't think I really hold out any hope of going overseas or, or travelling anywhere. I'm stuck in Western Australia at the moment. And uh um luckily, we have got some caves that I can keep my skills up in, but uh, all of our expeditions that are planned are on hold, and we'll see what happens when life gets back to normal.
0: When did you start doing cave diving full- time because you were a vet, weren't you?
1: oh, it's 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 far from full time. Uh, you know it's still just just a hobby but uh the normally we'd expect to have you know three or four um pretty major diving trips each year um but yeah i'm i'm retired i was a vet for a long time uh, fortunately i I sold out and uh retired uh three years ago in two thousand and seventeen, so I was pretty well placed for all this craziness and this strange turn that my life has taken since then um but I've got a few other hobbies to uh to keep me interested as well um so you know it's not like I'm sitting on my hands and waiting for something to happen I'm keeping pretty busy and uh, I look back and wonder how I ever had time to go to work.
0: (laughs) Well it's probably a good thing that you're in WA because you guys are I'm sitting in Melbourne where we've got a five kilometre radius lockdown and curfews and everything so uh if you've got the opportunity to, to to get out that's a a fabulous thing. So, um,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, hmm. you Victorians, you should try and be a little bit more like us. We, we try and We're set you a good all. example, but uh, <laughs> you just don't seem to listen.
0: I saw a, a map that was on some comedy thing and it was thanking all the states, and then they left Victoria off like it just wasn't on the map. <laughs> I think the rest of the country wants to divorce us, rightfully so.
1: Ah, uh, yeah. Look, there, there was hope of life getting back to normal until you've like said let the side down. I'm, I'm very disappointed in your performance.
0: Yes, well, we could go into the go into the details of the quarantine uh, uh, failures, and that's a whole other podcast episode. <laughs> <Craig>. <laughs> well, you are also available for public speaking.
1: Uh, As well. Yes, yeah. So um yep. did that that was pretty much a full time occupation last year. Um yep. and then uh for the last six months that's been pretty dead. Um but um a, it's firing up uh, over here locally um now. So particularly over the last few weeks I've I've started to do quite a few community events and schools and that sort of thing. Um, and you know, little by little we'll uh, we'll get back to that. But, I mean, I can't get back to the same pace that I, I did last year. I was just travelling all the time and never got any chance to live my life, but um, I'm still determined to do, uh, you know, a reasonable amount of it. Um, it it's going around and, and telling the story, there's no doubt that people do seem to get inspired and uh get some uplift from from hearing the story, so if I can bring that to people then I'm in a very fortunate position and uh so I'll keep doing that for as long as people think it's worthwhile
0: well, considering the worlds falling apart at the moment, it's probably a great opportunity for um corporates to reach out and um engage with you because you could do them over Zoom, couldn't you?
1: Oh, you can, I, I'm not really that much of a, a fan of doing that because it's, it's not the same as being in yeah. the room with people and you, you sit there and you talk to a screen and there's no real, uh, feedback. I mean, you know, you hear people talk about you, you feed off the audience and, and, uh, get, get some, uh, some life from them and that's absolutely true there's it is not the same thing as doing stuff remotely and of course the best bit for me is doing a meet and greet afterwards and uh, meeting people that i would have never come across in normal life that's the bit that i really enjoy um don't really get to that so i i much prefer doing live events and uh, i hope that that's the way it heads we get back to normal soon
0: Well, Craig, I wish you all the best. Um, If you haven't, everyone, if you haven't uh, read Against All Odds, please go out and get it. It's a fantastic read and uh, when the world calms down, you can all reach out to Craig and uh, engage him for corporate speaking gigs. Thanks so much, Craig.
1: Super. Thanks, Fiona. Great talking to you.
0: Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them.